we've saw over the last 18 years of combat that near-peer competitors have made vast investments and in, in a great deal of not both material and also personnel to transform their militaries to erode the overmatch that we've enjoyed for so very long. Those, those nations, those smaller nations that are scared to death of China, when they see a striker brigade show up from JBLM, it's like the heavens party. And it makes them feel good and they know we're gonna be there. So that's where you're in the competitive space. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI, and this episode is a little bit shorter than usual, but it also features a fantastic guest, Secretary of the Army, Ryan McCarthy. He was visiting West Point recently, and we took advantage with MWI's Major Jake Moraldi sitting down to ask him some big picture questions about where the Army's at today and about some of the pretty big changes it's undergoing. It's an episode I really hope you'll like, but before we get to it, there is one thing I wanted to mention. Many listeners will know that at MWI, we have an initiative called the Urban Warfare Project, basically our effort to better understand some of the huge challenges military forces face when operating in cities. Well, we just launched the Urban Warfare Project podcast with John Spencer, our chair of Urban Warfare Studies, as the host. It'll be a limited series. We don't know exactly how many episodes yet, but we just released the first one, and you can find and subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And one last thing, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Jake Moraldi and Secretary Ryan McCarthy. Sir, welcome. Thank you for coming to sit down and talk to us today. Um, I want to lead off with a question talking about priorities and how enduring our priorities are as an army in particular and, and whether the, the nature of the changing battlefield is forcing those priorities to evolve or if there are some things that are endure uh, in your eyes. So we are uh, just had a major shift in the army leadership. Secretary Esper was elevated to Secretary of Defense. General Milley elevated to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, but General James McConville, who was the vice and now our 40th chief of staff, and I were counterparts, the under vice team, if you will. And we basically embraced the same priority set that Secretary Esper and General Milley set for the Army of readiness, modernization, and reform. The only added um, focus for us is people. So when you look at the world today, we still have 180,000 people deployed worldwide in 140 countries, many of which are conducting combat operations. So when you're faced with the real-life challenges of waking up and deploying into combat to meet national objectives, readiness will remain number one whether I'm on the job or not. <coughs> so when you look at it from that standpoint, you have a fundamental responsibility to have the resources and energy to focus units for, to train from an individual to collective basis to be ready to deploy. Now, modernization has had tremendous emphasis in the last two and a half years alone because what we've saw over the last 18 years of combat, that near-peer competitors have made vast investments in, in a great deal of not both material and also personnel to transform their militaries to erode the overmatch that we've enjoyed for so very long. 
So in order for America to maintain best of breed against any foe or potential foe, we have to replace the signature weapon systems that have, we've been blessed in our form to perform in our formation so well for so many years. Uh, so what you're seeing is a, a tremendous energy from Army leadership to invest against 31 signature systems across six primary investment portfolios, long-range precision fires, next-generation combat vehicle, future vertical lift, network, integrated air missile defense, and then soldier lethality. So you touched on readiness, and I think there's a lot bound up in that word, and, and people can take readiness to mean a lot of different things. From your perspective, how do you view readiness now? How do you understand that in terms of our forces as they currently exist, and what does readiness look like in the future? So readiness has been the individual repetitions an individual soldier has to make in order to perform their duty responsibilities. So like a football player throwing a football 30,000 times in the summer, getting ready for the season, and then ultimately getting in formation and doing it with the 10 teammates, that's your collective training task, like a company battalion level live fire. And as you kind of go through that continuum, so the unit is ready to go. When we look at how our individual readiness, for me, one thing that I've been asking the leadership to look at and as a, as a force, what we're going to try to do more of is, do we have the right metrics of lethality? Is your marksmanship getting better? Are you doing better in a squad or a platoon level live fire? So how we evaluate the performance of each repetition is something where you'll see a lot of energy to make sure we are getting better with each repetition with each following day. So uh, it's, it's how we look at the problem set and how we conduct ourselves, maybe potentially different, or maybe we just do it the same. We'll follow the data as, and as they bring it back into us. So obviously, this concept of readiness, this sort of assessment-based, data-based discussion of, of what readiness constitutes, are there any trends that are starting to bear themselves out about what we think that means in terms of the future force readiness or how we need to adjust force structure or training or manning mm -hmm. to, to meet those readiness challenges? So uh, readiness will probably change in the next several years because we're bringing new weapon systems into the formation that will have greater range, greater loiter time, greater lethality. <clears throat> so uh, we'll learn a lot and it'll force us to behave differently over time. So those materiel investments will help us change ourselves. Uh, with that, you're, there are new domains of combat that America is really becoming more conscious of, space and cyberspace. So collectively, as you bring new domains into an operating concept, new weapon systems, it will adjust the way we do business. Sure. So talking about those new domains, how do you foresee as the Secretary those new domains being integrated into tactical level formations, right? Where maybe these capabilities haven't been seen or haven't been integrated in a meaningful way in the past. So, for example, during the invasion in 2001, Captain McCarthy, it's the first time I ever saw satellite photos. Today, 18 years later, the Army's making investments so that satellite capability, the tasking of a satellite, will be pushed down to the brigade command level so that you can bring what had been historically a national level asset that only a tier one special operations unit would get its hands on, pushing that to the conventional force. So 
put a 10th mountain patch inside of that satellite and now that brigade commander owns it. So that's how do you bring that capability to bear and now you're bring, bringing that situational awareness to a brigade combat team where they can now shape the battle space because they have greater situational awareness. How do you think those capabilities being pushed down to that lower level influences the way that the Army needs to do training and education? I think it makes sense to put in there as well as manning and equipping those lower level formations. For example, you know, I've, I've heard discussion at the Marine Corps talking about building bigger squads that incorporate some of these multi-domain soldiers uh, into their lower level tactical formations. Is that, is that kind of something the Army's thinking about or are we in a place where we're still evaluating what we're gonna do with those multi-domain capabilities? So when you, if we bring these low Earth orbit satellites that I discussed there a moment ago, if you bring that into the fold and you put it into a CTC rotation out at uh, say either JRTC or, or NTC, what you'll find is that the brigade will be able to control more battle space than it had historically. So now a formation of, of what historically may have been taken upwards of a division to control battle space, a brigade can do it because they're going to be able to see further out, be able to shape that with long-range precision fires, with attack aviation or close air support from a, a fast mover. So what I think what we'll see more of is that the range of your capabilities will be much greater than you had before at a smaller echelon. Now we'll validate that once we put it in the hands of our, of our personnel, but that's what soldier-centered design is all about. What we've been doing over the last three years is putting these weapon systems that we're prototyping into the hands of the 82nd Airborne Division, the 1st Infantry Division, because the soldier-centered design helps you get active units that are the most relevant, most recent experiences in combat, they're going to shape their requirements on the weapon system. So you mentioned earlier the near-peer threat, and we were talking to the cadets earlier, you talked about the national security strategy, mm -hmm. and near-peer is obviously a, a big component of the, of the national security strategy. How does that sort of return to a near-peer concept influence mm -hmm. your priorities as the secretary and, and what you're putting emphasis on? So trying to find the balance, it's, 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 ch it's challenging because if you look at nuclear posture, it's largely a Navy and Air Force issue, but they'll, they'll have to have that. That's what maintained the peace for 70 years. But the near-peer competition, irregular warfare, and partnership capacity, those are in the wheelhouse of the U.S. Army, those three issues. So kind of you walk down those, those three planks, if you will. Near-peer competition, we see that in Europe, we see it in Asia. When U.S. forces are doing dynamic force employment from Thailand to the Philippines to places like Palau, which we haven't been in 37 years, we fill the void. And those, those, those nations, those smaller nations that are scared to death of China, when they see a striker brigade show up from JBLM, it's like the heavens parting. And it makes them feel good and they know we're going to be there. So that's where you're in the competitive space against a near peer, whether it's in Southeast Asia, it's in Africa, it's, it's in Eastern Europe. So the presence of partnering with a, you know, one of these partners, now you hit two of them together, you're merging them together. So it's as much training together as a foreign military sales, they're buying our capabilities, we have interoperability as teammates. And so that's kind of your large scale, pre-kinetic type of behavior. So we're over there training, could it go to large-scale ground combat operations? It could. 
but you're doing live fire exercises at the brigade and battalion level with those partners and you're raising their game. And then the third one that I mentioned before is irregular warfare. Irregular warfare is what we face in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and for the foreseeable future, U.S. personnel will deploy in support of combat operations as well as doing advise assist operations with our partners uh, in the Middle East, Africa in particular. And, there, and those are places where we've historically done pretty well. So for our lower level leaders, particularly our, our junior officers, what is the, the construct that you just laid out, right? The having to manage partnerships and deploy to places to conduct partnership operations and being prepared to conduct major ground combat as well as being prepared to do contingency operations like what we've done in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. What does that mean for, for them and, and how should they prepare to do those things? Some of the things I, I tried to address in my remarks uh, with the firsties, if you're a master in the fundamentals, you can train others. In U.S. personnel that are mastering small unit operations, the simple things, the troop leading procedures, if you're mastering those going from individual marksmanship to platoon and company live fires, that's where when we do that side by side, side, by side with our allies in Romania and the Baltics, that we're going to raise their game, we're going to increase their confidence. And that's where they're doing the training for battalion, brigade level live fires. That's where large, ground, uh, large scale ground combat operations comes into play. If they're going to deploy to Afghanistan, it'll be a little more tailored as they go through the train-ups. Uh, but right now, the, the preponderance of the effort that we're, we're putting in place from our training plans is large-scale. So we try to find that balance because the real world has a funny way of getting in the middle of our ambition to prepare for, uh, for near peers. So we've got to do it both, chewing gum and walking at the same time. So in your mind, just to clarify... For fundamentals, mm -hmm. what sort of things do you mean? We're, we're here in the football stadium. What are sort of the blocking and tackling uh, pieces that we need to be able to do? I'll try to find a metaphor that's appropriate. <laughs> the, uh, so first and foremost, as an individual soldier, your marksmanship, your physical fitness, and then understanding simple battle drills, whether you're doing movement to contact or you're going to do, you know, taking out a bunker, whatever it is you're going to do, you have to know your job as an individual. And then once you, once you start conducting those reps together as a team, when you're doing live fire exercises, platoon and company level. But it always starts with the individual. Hit the sled, hit the weight room, right? And then you get in there and you know you can do your job effectively. And that's when, you, when you're competent in those simple fundamentals, that's where you build trust with the teammate. I think you found your metaphor. So uh, that seems as good a place as any to wind it up. I appreciate you taking that time to talk to us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks, sir. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, hopefully you're already subscribed to the podcast. If not, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please take just a couple quick moments and leave us a rating or give us a review. It really is a huge help in getting the word out to new listeners. All right. Thanks again. Thanks again.